Today's episode of Pop Culture Reference is brought to you by the Professional Cinema Society's bi-annual student film and video festival here at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. If you want to submit to this year's festival, the deadline is December 6th, and you can find more information on the Professional Cinema Society's Facebook page. Now, on with the show. Hello everyone, broadcasting live from a spooky mansion on a hill just outside of town, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. I'm Garrett Strother. Are we not going to do aliases? I thought we discussed Oh, this. God. I'm Colonel Mustard. The moment's gone. Ah, whatever. You ruined it. You ruined it. <laughs> Can I be Dr. Orchid? Oh, I... Are we even going to get into the modern... No, we probably clue, shouldn't. But the clue discourse? There is, there's barely discourse. <laughs> there's discourse because we just watched it, but... But before our main segment, we're going to get into news. Why don't you take the first bit of news, Garrett, because I think you know more than me about this one. So, recently it was announced, actually my dad sent me this on Thursday, that Holly Hunter and Ted Danson will be co-starring in an NBC comedy from Tina Fey. Which, talk about a perfect storm, am I right, boys? Like, holy heck. Those are all of my favorite things. Yeah, it's going to be, hopefully, another home run here for... For that team of wonderful What's the rundown? Writers. What's the setup? I don't know. That's literally... It's, it's all a big mystery, right? Because yeah. I've, I've heard a little bit about this, but nothing more than the stars and the team behind it. So. And that's all I and need Jane to Krinkowski. know. Jane Is she in it, too? She's got to be in it. What's, I mean, I would assume so. She's, like, legitimately best friends with Tina Fey. Mm-hmm. Like, that. that is not a bit more or less of just a fact that they work together so much and... Connect them all, the Tina Fey, Robert Carlock univoice. It would be such a goofy universe, but I wouldn't care at all. Well, I mean, Kimmy Schmidt, the two existing ones, Kimmy Schmidt and 30 Rock, are already so interconnected that it wouldn't, like, they're still probably going to do concrete? They talk about Tracy Jordan on Kimmy Schmidt. Titus mentions Defuan at one point. Yeah. Oh, God. I want to see that split-screen editing of Defuan and Titus talking to each other. That's a Christmas special, I think. Oh, that would be so it's much fun. It's the interactive Bandersnatch episode they're doing. I'm still super unsure about that, but I'm definitely going to play it. That'd be really fun. In other movie news, we got this covered, recently heard a rumor from a leak, which is the same leak that they heard that there was an Aladdin sequel and a Joker sequel in the works, both of which have since been confirmed, that Disney and John Turtletob are working on National Treasure 3. National Treasure 3. That is probably the biggest announcement or leak, whatever. I want to believe so badly that it's true, and I... we all love National Treasure. We've, like, written this movie before. It only makes sense. I've never seen it, but sure. You've never seen National Treasure? No. You knew that. I probably did before, but good God, we're going to do National Treasure Month if it kills me. It's wonderful. Well, hopefully we'll be doing it in preparation for the third one. Oh, God. And That's the dream. Finally finding out what's on page 47 of the President's oh, Book of Secrets. yes, please. I want to know. well and good. Other than that, it's a pretty light news week, so I say we move right into our main segment. So this week, our main segment's going to be talking about the 1985 classic Clue, starring... Martin Mull, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Tim Curry. And lots of other people. Leslie Ann Warren. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I, I don't know these many names. I don't oh, know, man. Oh, Michael McKean. That's Mr. Green. <laughs> ah, he was very good in this. He's the main guy from Spinal Tap. Oh, my God. I did not recognize him at all when I rewatched it last night. Mm-hmm. Holy, holy hell. No, he is in everything, and he's wonderful. It's always a treat to revisit this one, don't you think? It's it's so yeah. it's so weird. It's so <laughs> convoluted, and it's so funny. Oh, my God. So right off the bat, something that I noticed that I was really tickled by is that the title card for the movie is a literal title card. That yeah. it's Clue within yeah. the card like it would be in the board game, and I thought that was really nice because, honestly... I have played Clue maybe two or three times in my life, so I often forget that this is a board game movie altogether. I just think of it as its own entity. Board game movie month. Oh, no. Board game movie What would that month. be? Clue? Battleship? They're no making, other examples? They're making the Monopoly movie. They're also Why? making the Connect Four movie. What, what does that even mean? <laughs> what does that even mean, the Connect Four movie? Jeez. 
They could make a Minesweeper movie you and make it real dramatic. Pitch me the Connect Four movie. It's about uh, it's uh, four orphans who were <laughs> who were, or no, not four. It's four siblings that were uh, oh, separated at birth and like they it. connect back later in life. I don't know. I don't know. I would have gone for like a post-apocalypse where the only winner is who wins the Connect Four. Like it's a huge oh my Thunderdome type deal. Well, I like Connect that too. Four. But we're. We're talking about Clue, not our weird <laughs> hypothetical Connect Four movies. A couple other things I noticed during the opening credits of this movie. John Landis worked on the story for this movie. I yeah. did recognize his name up there, up top. That I was... thought that was just crazy. Which, it makes sense. It has John Landis antics in it, and yeah. certainly his sense of humor. But the screenplay was ultimately written by the director, Jonathan Lynn, who... I cannot even imagine writing this movie. Oh my god, yeah. Having to keep track of so many moving parts, and then also the fact that spoilers, having it fit multiple endings. I think they probably did it because they didn't keep track of everything. <laughs> yeah, maybe. This is a mystery in the loosest of terms. I but don't you think still, but any you, of this was thought through. But I was taking notes like a madman on this <laughs> yes. rewatch. All of it lines up, and whether they wrote the initial part of the story with those moving pieces in mind or not, at some point somebody had to sit down and figure out where everybody is at every single point of every murder in the movie and how all of their motivations would line up to excuse the fact that they can have multiple endings. On one level, just a technical level of structure, I can't imagine writing this movie, and then also every single line is a one-liner that is hilarious. Honestly, yeah, you're not wrong. It's all jokes constantly. So we're in New England in 1954. We see all of our guests arriving from the board game Clue. We've got Wadsworth the butler, Colonel Mustard, Professor Plum, Mr. Green, who's been changed from Reverend Green. I believe when the the movie came out, Clue still had him as Reverend Green. Reverend Green from The World's End. Moving on. (laughs) Then Miss Scarlet, Miss Peacock... And Miss White, who has been changed from a maid in the board game to, in the movie, a widow. Seamus, you just mentioned there is a maid in this movie, so it is interesting that she's not Miss White. She's Yvette, the maid. Yeah, Yvette. I guess they just had to flesh out the, like, higher society people and their connection to Mr. Body, the host who has mysteriously all invited them to this mansion. We get there. We meet all of our characters. They all sit down for dinner. There's a lot of great one-liners that we can go back and forth on, but in the interest of time, we won't. They all sit down to dinner, and they learn they're all people who either are associated with government work or live in Washington. We learn Plum is a psychologist. Green works in Washington. Peacock is the wife of a congressman. We learn Scarlet is a madam. Miss White, whose husband died, maybe or maybe not, by Miss White's own hand, was a nuclear physicist, and Mustard, obviously, is a colonel. Lots of lots of government stuff here. Yeah. on Washington, intrigue. It's the 50s, so yeah. in the yeah. height of the Red Scare. A lot of, yeah, a lot Those of the fears of communism. bombs. And oh, whatnot. yeah, they're, they're really trying to hammer home about the research of fusion bombs and the like, and... I, I didn't mind. Edgar Hoover. Oh, yeah, talking about Hoover a lot because that was, you know, of the time. And I wasn't really thrown by, like, they put their uh, smaller connection with, like, the politicians DC thing because they don't truly reveal their real connection until the next scene in the parlor. True. So Mr. Body shows up, our mysterious host, and it is revealed by Wadsworth the butler that all of them are being blackmailed. Plum previously had an affair with one of his patients. Peacock is taking bribes for influence over her husband's vote. Green is gay, but since he works for the what? State Department, he <laughs> What are you saying that. to me right now? Uh, Mustard has been photographed at the establishment which Miss Scarlet runs, so obviously that puts him in a compromising position. And then, of course, Miss White maybe, maybe not killed her husband. So we got a whole mishmash of just, like, weird, dark backstories that mm-hmm. get revealed pretty swiftly in this. So all of them are wondering, of course, why Mr. Body is there, and, and he is the one blackmailing them. That's when Mr. Body reveals himself and distributes gifts to all of the guests. 
Scarlet, a candlestick. White, a noose. Green, a pipe. Mustard, a wrench. Plum, a revolver. And Peacock, a dagger. Very fun setup. This is, I couldn't imagine. Oh, it's like the board game, I get it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody just going, oh, yeah, sure. They, they do find very fun ways like that to keep the board game elements as real as possible. I guess this isn't a very realistic movie, but... <laughs> it's a very literal interpretation of the board game. Yeah. And it's I, very fun. Yeah, I think it's yeah. very fun that they're all just distributed the murder weapons. should be. Don't try to give me a gritty clue reboot. Yeah, exactly, which we talked about on an earlier just episode. Just wait till Ryan Reynolds gets uh, his hands well, on it. At least going to make it funny. Let's hope. We'll Good. find out. The lights go out because Mr. Body instructs them to kill Wadsworth so that they can all escape from the house which Wadsworth has locked with the key that he keeps. When the lights come back up, Mr. Body is dead on the floor. Weird. I don't yeah. know why he, Mr. Body... Mr. Body hmm. has introduced. And there's a, lot, there's a good uh, bit of confusion in the dark of, like, guns going off, people swinging blunt objects, mm-hmm. things happening, screaming, glass breaking, all before the lights come back up, and that's kind of where the first bit of mystery stems. A vet screams from the other room because she hears on a tape recorder the fact that Body has been murdered. Or that the brandy may have been poisoned which she's drinking, which is another big part of this. Yes. Um, They run over when they hear a commotion in the kitchen. Not only is Mr. Body dead, but the cook has been murdered. With the knife. With the dagger. Yes. Uh, Which Miss Peacock claims to have dropped in all of the commotion. As Colonel Mustard says... Two bodies. Everything's fine. Yeah, yeah. God, they they end up uh, dragging them all back to the parlor where things just get even more complicated and convoluted. Wadsworth locks up the weapons, but also Mr. Body's body is now missing. Green, in his attempt to relieve himself, goes to the bathroom only to find Mr. Body's head now bloodied and the corpse falling on top of him. All of them, unsure of who the murderer is and afraid there might be a Another party murdering them elsewhere in the house pair up to search the house. Green and Yvette, Mustard and Scarlet, Plum and Peacock, and Wandsworth and White. This basically takes us through the rest of the movie is this uh, setup, except for every once in a while a new guest arrives that they have to quickly lock up in one of the spare rooms. Yeah, we've got uh, a cop. We've got uh, someone whose car's broken down. There's a singing telegram. Yeah, a singing telegram bit. Very funny because throughout each little scene with these characters alone, Mm -hmm. they're usually talking on the phone to somebody mysterious, kind of peppering in that they may have a connection to a certain guest at this party. Mm -hmm. and. Inevitably, all of these included guests are <clears throat> killed. They and are mysteriously. The cabinet is unlocked after they've let the policeman in, which allows the motorist to be murdered, and then later the cop, and then <laughs> instantly <laughs> the, the singing yeah. telegram as yeah. soon as they open the door, and finally a vet. Oh, that's right. Yeah, a vet gets a vet gets Moided. axed as well. Yes, I forgot how somehow. And so, I mean, like, throughout all of this, too, is a lot of fun, like, secret passages, things that connect mm-hmm. rooms to different rooms. Yeah, Exploring the house is very fun, as each of them is suspicious of the other, especially when Mustard and Scarlet discover a secret passage only to find the motorist murdered and are afraid that they've been trapped in this room that's locked from the outside with potentially the murderer and certainly the dead body. Let us out! Let us out! Let us in! Let us in! Just trying to get back and forth. Classic... <laughs> Comedy. Truly. <laughs> and then when Mustard gets let out, he's had such a scare that he says he can't take one more, and then a chandelier falls and crashes <laughs> right behind him. Almost takes out another person. Mm-hmm. Very fun. But here is where we get into the reveal. So the question is, who... Who done it? Who done it indeed? Which Shannon's. they actually say? All right, now who done it at a certain point? Yeah, yeah. which is pretty great. Yeah. And... One of the many ways. So, essentially, it all boils down to three different endings. One of which, where Scarlet is responsible for every single murder, either directly or indirectly, where the guests have been murdered by Scarlet, and a vet was working at her behest 
to commit the other murders because Yvette was one of the prostitutes which Miss Scarlet employed. We also learn in this Who's first ending... Whose idea was it for her to be French? Oh, I don't know. She's in a French maid's outfit. They might as well have just thrown that accent on there. We also learn that all of the murdered parties have some kind of connection to the characters. That the motorist used to drive around Mustard in the war and was the one who actually told on him to body because he knew that Colonel Mustard was a war profiteer. Yeah, which is pretty pretty heavy stuff to throw on that character at the end. We learn that the cop is on Miss Scarlet's payroll, and that's who she has to bribe to keep from getting her brothel shut down. Right, yeah. And finally, that the singing telegram girl is the patient who Plum had an affair with. So... Everybody that's getting murdered has some connection to our primary characters. And also, like, every guest is the worst person ever. Like, every single one of them is, like, yeah. a monster, pretty much. Yeah. And then Green's just gay. Well, yeah, that's true. He He's one of the only ones that are, like, not really in it for, like, a very nefarious reason. What did Wadsworth do to anybody? Well, let's get there. Scarlet reveals that while she may run a brothel, she also runs what essentially is a treason factory. Yeah, where, spy ring, kind of. Um, where Good for her. Her prostitutes <laughs> uncover information from their Washington clients, which then she in turn is going to sell, along with all of the secrets of everybody in the house. However, you'd watch that solo movie, right? Oh, you know it. You'd dude. watch the Miss Scarlet solo. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's how you do a reboot of Clue. You give each individual character their own movie, and you bring them together in the <laughs> mansion, Avenger style. That sounds like the worst postmodern Thirty Rock. <laughs> oh, that would be horrific. You don't want to watch Plum. You're not trying to watch like a gritty, messed up war movie about Colonel Mustard. And how he's a cat. That sounds like Catch-22. Yeah, During World War One. Oh, yeah. Where do you think he gets his name from? Oh. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, oh no. Man. They call him Colonel Mustard. Oh. So Walks af- through clouds with a gas mask Jesus. On. After learning of Scarlet's motivations for committing all of these murders, they're all surprised to learn it has nothing to do with their actual jobs and just about the secrets they carry. Which we get the first line. Communism was just a red heron. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. It's so good how much they have that hope. After a quite funny back and forth about how many bullets may or may not be left in the revolver. It's one plus two plus one plus one. Or it's one plus two plus two plus one. In which case, yeah, they do this for a while. It's a good bit. I like this bit. (laughs) The police storm in. The gun is misfired, revealing that it does have one bullet in it. It strikes the court of the chandelier, which falls behind Mustard yet again. A second shattered chandelier. Love that. And then we freeze frame. And, oh, that was a cute, nice little ending to the movie. But wait, there's more. You dumb, stupid idiot. (laughs) You thought there was one ending to this movie? Well, that's how it could have happened, according to the title card. We do a quick time jump back to Wadsworth explaining everything but this time it's Miss Peacock they do the everybody turn out your pockets whoever has the gun is the murderer and then Miss Peacock pulls that baby right out of her purse communism once again just a red herring she killed them all just to make sure that her secret wasn't revealed. I think this is probably the weakest of the three endings. Yeah, probably. But, you know, I give Clue all the credit in the world, so I don't mind. Hey, they gave us two more, so who are we, we going to blame here? Especially because it pays off the bit planted at the beginning during dinner where Miss Peacock says that this is one of her favorite recipes, and then Wadsworth replies that he knows so we learned that the cook was who was in Peacock's employ, and that's who gave the information to Body with which to blackmail Peacock. So Wadsworth very coolly suggests that they all forget all about everything that occurred at the mansion, go stack the bodies neatly in the cellar, and all leave. As Peacock is slowly backing out of the house, they all sing for She's a Jolly Good Fellow. <laughs> yeah, which is super weird. And Madeline Kahn, who gives a weirdly understated performance for both her career and in this movie full of insane performances. Right, yeah. Is so funny in every scene, but specifically in this scene 
they're all singing it in unison, except she's doing, like, weird backup reprises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's such a weird, because no, none of those characters knew they were going to do that. And she's just like, I got this. She, she does it and makes it real nice. Which is wonderful. As Peacock leaves, it's revealed that the FBI is still waiting outside and Wadsworth was an agent the whole time for the FBI. So uh, our freeze frame is all of them walking out to watch Miss Peacock get arrested and Wadsworth asking if anybody would care for some fruit or dessert. Good callback to a throwaway before. Mm -hmm. God bless Tip Curry. Finally. He's killing it here. Oh, totally. But now we get the final title card... But this is how it really happened. And we get our actual, what I consider the canonical ending. So we learn initially Plum is the one who killed Mr. Body. Peacock is the one who killed the cook for the same reason that we learned in the previous ending, that she is the one who used to work for Peacock. Mustard is the one who took the key and killed the motorist who used to work for him, which we already knew. White killed a vet because it turns out that a vet is the one who was having an affair with her husband which is the reason that she also reveals she killed her husband scarlet killed the cop who was on her payroll and wadsworth shot the singing telegram what a just tangled mess we have Mm -hmm. here in front of us it's the only way this movie could have ended (laughs) yeah pretty much wadsworth also reveals that he is mr body and mr body is his butler it's all a mess, but I kind of do love that thing where it's just been, like, he's been the mastermind the whole time. Like, all of his, like, weirdly genuine, like, pleas of innocence were just, like, really good in-character acting. And, ah, I don't know. Then he, also, he runs down the whole thing. That's, like, the entire third act of this movie. Just oh, him yes, him explaining. Running around <laughs> explaining the movie. I forgot that's how he does it, but... Well, it's because it's the last part of the board game, too, which has a really great, just perfect little summation in this scene when he reveals that he's the one who shot the singing telegram. He says, I did it. In the hall with the revolver. That's right. And then we also, in all of this big flood of admission of guilt for all the different characters, weirdly enough, Mr. Green is like, I didn't do anything. I didn't kill anyone. See, yeah. his, his common reprise throughout this film is, see, I told you I didn't do it. Yeah. Also, once again, communism is just a red herring as <laughs> oh, a formality yeah. for our audience. Third time in a row, in any of these endings, communism is nothing more than a red herring. But as Wandsworth is having his little speech up on the staircase, Green whips out his revolver and shoots Wadsworth in the chest. Yeah, he he messes him up. So, turns out, Green is actually the person who works for the FBI. He's an FBI agent. The FBI barges in. He tells them they all did it. And then, of course, it's... It's a great extra last reveal of him talking to the chief or whatever, the whoever's in charge, and he says, good job, boys, now I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. And it's freeze frame. Freeze frame on him, <laughs> big smile on his face. Big freeze frame of him sleeping with his wife. <laughs> if only. <laughs> yeah, and that's all she wrote. Murder. Murder, she wrote. She wrote. What a... Thus begins my ever... Like lasting campaign to get Angela Lansbury on the podcast. Oh my god, it would be a dream. And this movie is so fun. This movie is so good. It has not aged really at all. It's a little slow, maybe. Maybe a little bit, but I don't know. I, I like it enough where that doesn't bother me. It helps that every single person in this movie is absolutely hilarious. Oh, I yeah, think. totally. And and that slowness in the beginning does kind of come from, like, it is so many characters at once, we can't examine them, but they are really just, like, ways to tell jokes, yeah. pretty much, until we get into the more nitty-gritty of who they are. Yeah. Again, that is where my admiration for the writing of this movie stems, because it would take so much brain power to both generate the jokes in this movie, which are top-tier comedy, and also... To keep track of all the moving parts. Of you have eight characters? Nine characters, yeah, if nine. you count the cook. Sure, yeah. So you have nine characters, plus all of the guests who arrive, 
later in the film during searching the house. It's a mess, and it all works out pretty cleanly. And that's why I'm scared about this new one, because I think you can't strike lightning in a bottle gold <laughs> twice. No, it's too... Not. It's, like, unimaginable to have that done today as well as it was in 1985, you know? But there's so much potential in the concept of true, <laughs> I believe... Anyway, we've talked already on the podcast about how we feel a Clue remake should yeah. go. If they bring in the right cast beyond Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman, I'm interested to see where they could go with it. But I'm really skeptical based on what I've heard so far that this is going to be anywhere near the caliber that this movie is. I really wish I'd been around in 1985 to go see it in the theater. Oh, God, yeah, me too. Just es- with the... Especially because... You had to go see it three times to get all three endings. Yeah, like three times at three different theaters hoping that you would get a different ending. I like the idea of when it first came out, everybody goes to the office the next Monday and they're like, oh, did you see Clue? And they're like, yeah, how about that ending? And they're like, that's that's not how that movie ended, you liar. You didn't see Clue. What do you mean Miss Scarlet did it? That's stupid. Isn't that perfect? For, like The only way to do that and not have people angry that they got cheated out of two other endings is to make it a direct streaming movie and have it randomly generated at the end. Yeah, I mean, because, I don't know. You couldn't do that now without, like you said, no. people getting real angry about it. Just make it a, a bandersnatch. And people would probably find out before the movie even came out, which would kind of spoil the surprise of it. I yeah, think. that's true. Something that I understand the theaters did back in the 80s to kind of quell what was going on about how people were frustrated when mm-hmm. they weren't seeing the ending they wanted to see is they would specify which ending they were showing. Oh, So it's like an ABC thing. Got it, got it. So they were just, yeah, all right. That's so insane to think about the distribution (laughs) and exhibition of that. It would have been The logistics of that are crazy. Like, oh my God. We all love Clue. I'm glad we got an excuse to talk about it. I'm really excited to see if Clue's spiritual successor, Knives Out, which we'll be talking about next Sunday on the podcast, lives up to the quality that this movie does. Here's hoping, because, I mean... That With the amount, a, the cast, mm-hmm. the amount of characters, and the just general setup is about as Clue as we're going to get right now until the new Clue comes out, and I think it's... It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be so much fun. I think we got another perfect storm here. I can't wait. All right, let's move on with the show. Now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Where's Riley? Ricardo, you got any guesses? Is it Jersey Mike's? He's usually at Jersey Mike's. No, but he is at a fast food restaurant. Uh, I don't know if you'd call Jersey Mike's fast food. I apologize, Jersey Mike's, for <laughs> equating you with what I'm about to say. He is at the McDonald's right over there. Well, he's over there? Yeah, right across the street. What are we doing here, then? That's Why? honestly, that's how I feel. We should have just had him walk into the booth. Why don't we go over to the McDonald's right now and ambush him? We wouldn't leave you guys hanging without our pop culture reference of the episode, and we're going to move right into that. Today's pop culture reference is the trope in film and television of the pocket protector, quote unquote. This might be popping up a little bit later in one of our other segments where we break down one of the TV series that we talk about every week, but the basic premise is if a character is shot in the chest, often they will have some kind of object in their pocket that will keep the bullet from actually hitting and killing them, merely ruining whatever object they were carrying. The thing I always think about when I see this trope in movies and TV is Teddy Roosevelt was famously giving a over-hour-long speech. There was an assassination attempt where the bullet lodged in the super-long manuscript (laughs) outlined for his speech, slowed it down enough that it only punctured his flesh on his chest, and then Teddy Roosevelt finished the speech before getting medical attention. So that's a pretty cool moment. Uh, What are some notable examples in film and TV that aren't the thing that we're going to talk about later, Ricardo? I feel like it's probably in every action movie, isn't it? It's in most action movies. It's in most westerns. It's usually a Bible or a cross. Oh, yeah. Or in Zorro, there's a cross moment, Mm -hmm. right? In Zorro, there's a deck of cards sometimes. It's a deck of cards. In A Fistful of Dollars, he famously wears a steel plate under his poncho so that when he gets shot, it's not a big deal and he just gets right back up. Famously also parodied in Back to the Future 3. Or more paid homage to, I would say. So yeah, that's been our pop culture reference of the episode. Let's move on to Hell is Other Podcasters. 
now it's time for our segment, Hell is Other Podcasters, where we break down the latest episode of The Good Place, Season 4, Episode 9, The Answer, which will also be the fall finale for the show. Every week now, I come in hot with, what an episode, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's got... It's terrific. Oh, I'm... I'm dreading more and more the ending of this show as we get closer because they're not getting worse. It is worse. just the next episode, right? It's a, the I'm end. not sure. We'll have to... We'll tweet out at the end. We'll tweet the answer to that. Because so it comes... That, the ending airs in January and they're... Oh. This is the finale. Right? Yeah, Did you say that it comes out in January? Yeah, the it's January 30th. So I don't know if they're coming back... I don't know if they're taking like a month off and then coming back in January and going through January... Or if they're just doing the finale, I'll be very curious to see. Maybe that's why, and I don't want to get too far into it, it's mentioned that they only have an hour and a half to solve, or like an hour, hour and a half to solve whatever problem they are in the room Gee, in the show. They only have the length of a TV movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how Rewrite I write the afterlife. Oh my goodness. It's a very well-framed episode. Yeah, we get right into it. We There's no even trying to pretend that you guys didn't see the last few episodes. They're ready to... They're in the judge's chambers with the judge searching all of the Janet's voids for the world reboot button. Michael and the Soul Squad are ready to wake up Chidi. The entire episode is framed around a slow-mo, a hyper-slow-mo shot of Ted Danson snapping his fingers while Jason spills a drink and Janet slowly materializes a margarita for Eleanor. Which is very cool to see in hyper slow motion because we never really get that view. Mm-hmm. Such a good setup. It's yeah. I also noticed that in the side angle, so that they only had to do the materialization effect for the front angle, Michael is blocking where the martini is. Smart. Frame. That's smart. Yeah, they probably saved some money on that. As Chidi is being woken up and getting all of his memories back from all of his 300 years or whatever it is. That, I think they said 300 years in the episode. Yeah, yeah something like of, that living, we get to see Chidi's entire existence from the day he was born. Where it's immediate. As, <laughs> as a baby in a cradle, he gets a stomach ache. Uh, from, that's a good bit. That's yeah, really it's funny. so good. His parents ask him the rhetorical question of asking a baby if they like their name, and he immediately starts crying and gets a stomach ache. It's very funny. We see that he can't decide where to sit in school as a kid, but when he hears his parents arguing in the other room and is afraid that they're going to get a divorce, he prepares an hour-long presentation about why they should stay together. so weird and heavy. (laughs) Yeah, for real. And all this is when he's like eight years old, too. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, It's pretty legit. It's a funny bit. It's a weird and heavy bit, like you said, Ricardo. And then from there, we just kind of slowly watch him grow up. We see him in grad school trying to write his thesis, but his professor is frustrated with him saying that there's a great mind behind this paper, but where is the heart and where are the guts? Yeah, and all of these like awesome flashes of his life are like based around, uh, as a child, Chidi having the revelation that everything has an answer. That's like his whole... Yeah internal philosophy at this point is that like no matter what if he like reads the right books or studies the right philosopher or does the right stuff he will find a finite definite answer for everything which we see later in his life end a relationship which we had never even heard about i don't think i don't think so either uh we see him introducing this woman to his parents who they get along really well with As they're washing dishes, she breaks up with him because she's just too frustrated with his inability to be a free spirit or to decide anything because of his hang-up on finding, quote-unquote, the answer. Which, I mean, that's, like, pretty much his whole character. We're, like, season four, we're getting, like, the deep dive on how he got how he is the entire time, which is nice. Essentially, now we fast-forward through the end of Chidi's life to his first day in The Good Place, where we see him getting tortured. We get a new look on our first season from back when Michael was truly in the height of his demon powers, Hmm. trying to torture Chidi with indecision. That goes to a flashing to uh, the reboots. Yes, so we get to see all of the reboots of Michael having to again and again and again as they figure out that it's the bad place, reboot them, and all of the different consciousnesses of Chidi meeting his friends, having a conversation and getting advice from Jason, having a conversation and getting advice from Tahani, and finally, all of the times that he fell in love with Eleanor. Which, wow, very sweet stuff Mm -hmm. going on in those flashes of just like... 
all this, like, again, this is a lot of stuff from reboots we haven't seen. You know, we get a lot of stuff that is, like, new, but kind of known. Just, like, a good lens on everything that he went through. you're telling me. Limitless revival potential. There's so many times. Oh my god! Honestly, they could make a million spinoffs. The Good Place: Colon the Reboots or something, something like that. We do learn, though, in a character moment in all of these reboots, that Eleanor doesn't think that the divorce story of him talking his parents out of getting divorced is cute. She thinks it's sad that Chidi had that much responsibility and weight on his shoulders from such a young age, and that that must be the source of all of his anxiety. After we're done with the reboots, we go when the all of the Soul Squad is back on Earth, living their lives with no memory of the good place. We see him and Eleanor getting to know each other. We weirdly skip over the Simone parts. Yeah, I think we're trying to move away from the Simone and Chidi Yeah, because stuff. we're focusing on Eleanor and Chidi at this point in the series. But Simone has been such a prominent part of this season so far. Yeah, that's true. That her presence did feel, or her lack of presence, rather, felt a little jarring to mm. me. Yeah. Finally, we get to the moment where Chidi has decided to have his memory wiped, and we get to see his final moments with his memory, which we didn't get to see back at the end of last season, where he's talking to Michael. It's Michael that reveals to him that it wasn't Chidi's presentation itself that convinced his parents to get together, but Chidi that convinced his parents to stay together for his good. And that it's not about finding the answer, it's about finding the people who you love in your life and making it work. That soulmates don't exist, but maybe you can make your own soulmate. Yeah, it's, it's it's the sentiment is like, there's no preset soulmates. You make your own through like the relationships you build, and that's very sweet, very heavy, very heartfelt. Again, from Michael, killing it this season. Mr. Ted Danson, my God. Get Ted Danson an Emmy. Hashtag. Give Ted so he's Danson dead, Emmy. right? Huh? Ted Danson's dead. Right, they're gonna kill him by the end of this. Oh God, season. that's what I hope not, but I feel like maybe yes. Chidi calls for Janet and writes himself a note on a sheet of paper if he should ever get his memory back, and asks Janet to give it to him. Which finally brings us to the end of our Michael snap back in the judges' chambers. Chidi wakes up all laid back. Yeah, like kind of cool now. <laughs> I, I like I like relaxed Chidi. It seems like it's relaxed. a nice change of pace. I want a mixture of laid back Chidi and Weekend at Bernie's Chidi. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good middle ground, you know. I want him this laid back but also with the sunglasses is really what I'm asking <laughs> In a Hawaiian for. shirt floating in a pool. Mm-hmm. I like that. He asks for his note back and we see what he wrote before he lost his memory. There is no answer in quotes. But Eleanor is the answer. So he really took what Michael said to heart about finding the people that you love and making it work. And then it's all about the people in your life that make your life worth living. And that's the end of our episode. Until The Good Place comes back. That's our hiatus, boys. Yeah, they're really leaving us hanging. (laughs) But I mean, there's nothing that could make me more excited for the upcoming finale or finales of the last couple episodes that when we come back we're getting this was such a beautiful episode i loved getting to know cheese character a little bit more especially since he's not had anything really to do this season from his originals Uh, character's Mm -hmm. perspective it hit really hard for me, and even just the name of the episode, The Answer, seems like such an obvious title for this final, presumably Chidi-centric episode. And I absolutely cannot wait to see what they do when they come back. It's going to be a long wait, boys. That's all I'm going to say, is that it's, it's going to be... a month? It's going to feel so long, It's because we're coming right up on the finale, and everything is coming together finally, and it's just, it's going to be so, so good. so much good TV. I know there is, but this specifically is, is, is got me. It's got me. So, this is our last Hell is Other Podcasters until The Good Place comes back from hiatus. So, until then, on with the show. The Mandalorian, episode three, titled... <coughs> The Sin. The Sin, yeah. We get it. We're getting some good titles now, boys. And another doozy of an episode for this incredible series so far. Yeah, I think this is the best episode we've had thus far because it has the most character and the most heart for sure. The first two episodes were more about establishing the world and the rules of this plot. And now we're really into something that is going to give us a little bit more depth on our main character. So we begin, we have... Baby Yoda in tow in the Razor Crest. 
Oh, is that what his ship is called? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. The Razor Crest. Little baby Yoda wants to play with this ball that's the top of presumably the hyperdrive lever. Right, yeah. That's in the I place so. of the hyperdrive lever on oh, the Millennium Falcon. So. Can match some engine pieces. The Mandalorian takes it back from Baby Yoda, saying it's not a toy, putting it back on the top. So this is not where I thought this show was gonna go. Oh man, it's it's getting I wild. Was, I didn't know it was gonna turn into a guy is converted to a new way of life with his interaction with a small child genre of movies. Well, he arrives back on Werner Herzog's planet, which is also where Carl Weathers is, right. and where the Mandalorian home base is. So the starting point of everything in this series. And he gives the child to Werner Herzog, who then takes out... Did you guys recognize what this prop is? Because I know I'm a bigger Star Wars nerd than both of you. Werner Herzog takes out a white cylinder with a very specific shape on the top. Was it that ice cream machine? It is the ice cream machine. So in The The Empire Strikes Back, in The Empire Strikes Back, when they're evacuating Cloud City, there's a fan favorite character who's on screen for like 16 frames. <laughs> okay. Who's just a guy in an orange shirt that's one of the evacuees of Cloud City that's running away with an ice cream maker. Does it, it's, it's made up to look like a prop or is it just it's a just, straight it's up? It's just a white ice cream maker <laughs> because clearly they thought that that was something that looked realistic enough to be in the background of Cloud City. But you know how Star Wars fans are. They just took it and literally ran with it. Yeah, straight up. And so, when I was at Star Wars Celebration in April, there were so many people dressed oh up as God. ice cream maker guy. Of course there <laughs> were. It's so funny. Of course I've never there even, were. I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. I've never even heard of this guy. Ice but, cream guy, a Star Wars story. <laughs> Make it happen, Kennedy. Clearly, Dave Filoni and John Favreau are so on their stuff because that's the container that Herzog brings out. It looks like this ice cream maker from episode five. So they're giving it an origin story, which is hilarious to me because I'm like, I'm getting the little endorphin rush of I know what that is and this right, is so yeah. funny. But also I'm kind of like, can we let the goofy stuff just be the goofy stuff? I don't know. I mean, it was subtle enough that I am just hearing about it on the air right now. So I guess it's it's just for people like you, Garrett. But it was really fun. He gets the best car medal, which is what the Mandalorians make their armor out of. It's a lot of it. Yeah. The Mandalorian then asks what Herzog's going to do with the child. And Herzog's all like, this is not your reputation <laughs> yeah. to ask these questions. That is not what the guild does or whatever. And mm-hmm. he's just like, get out of here. You don't need to know. The Mandalorian takes his Beskar medal. He gets out of there. He takes the Beskar to the Mandalorian uh, like hideout where he gets a full set of armor made but not before being called a coward by his fellow Mandalorians for dealing with former Imperials. Because the former Empire would have gotten the Beskar Medal, what they refer to as, quote, the Great Purge, presumably when the Empire took over Mandalore and took all of the Beskar Medal. So Nazis and Nazi gold. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly exactly what it is. So... Werner Herzog! He takes... The best car medal and gets a really sleek, yeah, really shiny, nice. beautiful Mandalorian armor. It's great. We get the hero shot of him walking into the bar victorious, where all of the bounty hunters who all had fobs that were tracking down Baby Yoda, but he's the one who got the goods. Yeah. Carl Weathers is there. He's all happy. Carl Weathers reaches into his vest pocket, shows, hey, I got some of that best car medal too, so thanks for making me a rich man. Yeah. And yeah, he's really he's really letting everybody know like this is my this is my number one guy, <laughs> just like the Mandalorian. He keeps calling him Mando, which Mando, I yeah. love that nickname. Also, briefly while we were back in the Mandalorian armor forge, we got a couple of more flashbacks to presumably the childhood of this character, including the fact that he was orphaned during the galactic war involving the battle droids. It was the Clone Wars on Mandalore, presumably. In the first episode, we we thought it was a flashback to what they're calling the Great Purge, but we get great shots of super battle droids massacring his family. We (laughs) get, like, uh, the droid CIS gunships just, like, swooping down in the streets. It looked like footage from Syria is honestly what it looked like. Kinda, yeah. It was like pretty hardcore droid full-on invasion massacre. 
Also, we get the repeated line that's obviously important to the Mandalorian religion, this is the way. Yeah. After talking to Carl Weathers and picking up his next bounty, he goes and gets in his ship, and the Mandalorian, as he's about to take off, sees that the ball is missing from the lever on his ship. Obviously, we're getting to see this character's inner thoughts a little bit. That was a nice visual way to cue us without having to see his face about what's going through his mind. I don't think they're going to be able to rely on tricks like that forever. Mm, yeah. For showing us like, his emotions. They can, though. I mean, they can, but I don't think they're going it's to. It's going to get really cheap if they keep doing that, I think. But basically, we know that he feels guilty, so he goes back to get Baby Yoda from Werner Herzog's compound. We get a great Stormtrooper shootout. I know yeah. we were just talking last week about how we wanted more Stormtrooper shoot 'em ups and this is everything yeah. we could have hoped for, Invading I think. the base, just killing people, lighting them on fire... Yeah, the flamethrower. Yeah, the, the wrist flamethrower is great. The whistling birds weapon that he acquired where he can push a button and tiny little homing rockets just yeah, blast people away. It's, it's like good. Yondu's arrow. Yeah, it's like Yondu's arrow, kind of. So he makes it out of there with Baby Yoda. He spares the life of the scientist who was presumably cloning Baby Yoda. We don't really know. He says... There's a part where he's listening in, and we hear Werner Herzog say something like, you have to extract whatever from the child, I believe. And my immediate thought was, oh, no, midichlorians. Yeah, better not be midichlorians. <laughs> they, they're smart enough to not keep that up. They know that that is going to piss people off. It's so, in there. I think but, it, like, this I is think... the era of, like, the mystery of the Force. There are no midichlorian talks. I think they're cloning him. That's yeah, my probably. official stance. But as he leaves with Baby Yoda, everybody's tracking fob starts to go back off because Baby Yoda's on the loose again. So then we get an ambush with Carl Weathers and the rest of the Bounty Hunters Guild. It was awesome. So good. The Mandalorian holds out way longer than I would have ever expected anybody in that situation to hold up, but it seems that all hope is lost as they're all firing on him as he's behind cover in what are presumably going to be the final moments of his life. He looks at Baby Yoda, and I would have loved to see his face to know what he was thinking in that scene. And I almost thought that it was like a, hey, I need your force help again, in kind of way. See, that's the thing. I thought it could be that. I thought it could be, was it worth it to die, to just die here, and you're going to go right back to where you came from? It Was it, and at least I tried? Was it, thank you for helping my humanity? I really wanted his face, and it... That was, I think, the point in the series where it's hurt the most to not be able to see that character's face. And I know yeah. we're going to get the reveal. Eventually we will. But just be, when it seems... It's going to be someone I don't know because I didn't watch 3,000 episodes of The Clone Wars. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a Clone Wars character specific, but it, uh, maybe he'll be referenced a reference character from the show. Darth Maul again. Oh, God, don't even... But just when it seems that all hope is lost, Spy Kids 3 call Everyone. everyone. All the Mandalorians coming out in their jetpacks, yeah. firing down on the Bounty Hunter Guild, telling them to get out of here, go! There's a great part with the heavy Mandalorian trooper that was giving him uh, crap, crap. And in the in the guild, and he's like, the Ma- Mando turns to him and goes, we're going to have to relocate, and he says, this is the way, this is, this the, is way. the way, nod, get out of here, man, and it's basically just like a, we'll hold them off, get to safety, it's going to get memed to death. Yeah, no yeah, kidding. Yeah, for sure. And then... Uh, he makes it to the ship, but we have one last obstacle to overcome because Carl Weathers, that smart, smart man, he's waiting on the ship. The Mandalorian, wasting no time, creates a cloud of carbon smoke from his carbon freezing machine, rendering Carl Weathers unable to track him. He shoots Carl Weathers in the chest, knocking him out of the ship, and he takes off into hyperspace. When we go back down to the ground, Carweathers starts awake, looks around, touches his blaster wound, and then pulls out his Beskar that he's been keeping in his pocket from before that, that saved his life. In so, case you weren't clear, this is a Western. Yeah, exactly. In case no you kidding. Weren't, had any doubts in your mind. <laughs> so Carweathers, he's still alive. The Beskar saved him. We'll see where that goes. And in our final moment of the episode, the Mandalorian, on his way out of the atmosphere into space, sees another Mandalorian on a jetpack. They share a quick little moment, and he says, I gotta gotta get get me one one of those. Oh, I can't wait until he gets a jetpack. Oh, actually, and he gives the baby 
the ball. Yeah, he gives it back to him. He's really warming up to that little baby Yoda, and I think it's going to be a very fun relationship that they're going to have. They are on the run now, though. This is this yeah. is yeah, it's going to be fun. This is prime plot time. I can't wait. So that wraps it up for this episode of Mando Bros. Uh, we'll see you next week when we break down next week's episode. I personally can't wait. It's uh, it's only getting better, folks. If you haven't start, please. I like how the entire plot to this show is uh, that one Brooklyn Nine Nine meme, where Rose is holding up a dog. He's like, if anything were to happen to Baby Yoda, I would kill everyone in this room and then myself. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what we got going yeah, on that's here. That's pretty much it. Oh Lord. Now, let's save the Rex Center. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Save the Rec Center. And I, I'm i going to go right out the gate here. There was a rumor that broke today that I didn't want to bring up for news because it's unsubstantiated as of yet. But there's a rumor that Resident Evil 3 is being remade in the style of Resident Evil 2 that just came out uh, this year. And I'm going to use this opportunity to plug the series as a whole. It's a it's pretty old. It's, it started in 1998, and no doubt you've heard about it. Avoid the movies if you can, but if you really want to just have an insane journey filled with horrific monsters, Resident Evil, try it. Start, start from the beginning. It, it only gets more confusing from there, but it's definitely worth it. That sounds awesome. Well, my rec center is actually because I've been watching a lot of Disney Plus this last week and a half, and something that I have been eagerly awaiting the ability to revisit is Kim Possible. It's a show that I loved so much. It was probably my favorite show when it was on in like 2002 to 2005. Mm. I was obsessed with Kim Possible. I remember watching the movie live with my parents (laughs) when it premiered. And going back, it's one of the few things that really holds up, I think, that is from that era of Disney Channel Mm. that I've been able to revisit now on Disney+. Plus. I highly recommend it. She's one of the first, I think like specifically girl power icons aimed at young girls in the action genre but it doesn't feel pandering in any way it's just a strong character leading a really compelling tv show so if you like animation if you like funny characters and if you like action-oriented storytelling this is definitely a show that's worth checking out each episode's 22 minutes uh standard length of a half hour network tv show so check it out what do you got ricardo he here's a weird one Anyone, you you remember Wacko's Wish, the Animaniacs movie? It's on Hulu. Check it out. If you like Animaniacs, you like animated comedy. Is Animaniacs on Hulu? Yeah. I didn't know that. The whole thing. Terrible and great news, I think, at the same time. The whole show, they've got the movie. Check out the movie. It's set during wintertime. It's kind of a Christmas movie. It is the season. It is It is the season. And then starting next week, we'll be dropping episodes. It'll be December 1st, next Sunday. So it'll really be Christmas, Christmas time. Yep. So stay tuned for that, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you ever want to reach the podcast and talk about any of the stuff that we are talking about on the episode, you can tweet us at PCR underscore podcast or email us at popculturereference pod at gmail.com that's pop culture reference pod at gmail.com thanks so much for listening we'll see you next week with our review of knives out